0: We at the History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and the History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join the History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other History fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with the History Guy, books behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at thehistoryguyguild.locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. On today's episode, the History Guide tells two stories of Spanish North America. Before the Dutch, English, or French had sent colonists across the Atlantic, Spain was conquering kingdoms and empires in Mexico and Peru. But they laid claims to lands much further afield and left their mark, both literally at the El Moro site in New Mexico and in history, when imperial posturing on a small island near Vancouver nearly sent Europe to war. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. Rock art has been a part
1: of human culture and history for millennia, even before the invention of writing, people were drawing pictures inside deep caves or on stone promontories or on the walls of buildings. It's occurred over space and time. There's graffiti on the walls of Pompeii. There's 2000 year old Roman graffiti complaining that the Egyptian tomb of Ramses VI was boring. In the United States, there's famous places like Independence Rock near Alcova, Wyoming, where pioneers scrape their names on the sides of the rock, and there are many other places like that, perhaps the most interesting of which is in western New Mexico, where a sandstone promontory in an ancient pueblo for centuries served as a stopping place for travelers from the earliest days of European settlement. Charles F. Lummis, who's a journalist and an activist for the preservation of antiquities, said of the stones of El Moro, certainly all the other rocks in America do not, in their entirety, hold so much of American history. It is history that deserves to be remembered. While still a matter of debate, the Pecos classification dates the emergence of the ancestral Pueblo culture to the 12th century BC. They have been identified as the precursors to the modern Pueblo peoples, such as the Zuni, Acoma, Hopi, and Taos. The Spanish gave them the name when they first explored this area in the 16th century, in reference to their multi-story adobe and stone villages. The term Anasazi was once used to describe these ancestral Puebloans, but has been rejected by the modern Puebloans because the Navajo word is an exonym, meaning ancient enemy, or perhaps ancestors of our enemy, referring to their competition with Puebloan peoples in the region. The Ancestral Puebloan culture is one of three major cultural traditions that existed in what is today the American Southwest, the other two being the Mogollon and the Hohokam cultures. The Ancestral Puebloan culture is known widely for three UNESCO World Heritage sites, Mesa Verde, Chaco Canyon where Pueblo Benita lies, and the Taos Pueblo, which is still inhabited and is one of the oldest continually inhabited communities in North America. Some of the buildings in Chaco Canyon are among the largest built in North America before the 19th century. In the late 1200s AD, a group of ancestral Puebloans built what would become an 875 room mesa-top pueblo surrounding a central courtyard. Strictly speaking, El Moro is not a mesa, but a cuesta, kind of a ridge with a gentle slope on one side and a steeper slope on the other. The site would have been home to up to 1,500 people. The site was situated along an ancient trade route called the Zuni-Acoma Trail, which led 73 miles between the Acoma and Zuni Pueblos. Most importantly, the site holds the only large pool of water within 30 miles, providing an oasis-like stopping place for travellers. The Zuni called the site Atsana, or Place of Writings, on the rock. The site was abandoned by 1400 for reasons still debated and unclear, but coinciding with a general southward movement of the Puebloan peoples into the pueblos the Spanish would visit in the 16th century. Though abandoned, the site is home to a large number of ancient petroglyphs left by the original inhabitants. Though often outshone by the carvings left later, the bighorn sheep, handprints, human figures, cocapelli, and geometric designs are the oldest marks left at El Morro, the old voices of the original inhabitants in its Mesa Pueblo. After the Spanish had conquered the Aztec Empire in 1521 and established a presence in modern Mexico, they sought to expand. The name Nuevo Mexico does not refer to the country of Mexico, which it predates, but is actually a reference to the Aztecs. The Spanish had an obsession with the rumored Seven Cities of Gold, which they thought were somewhere north of the Rio Grande. They named the region Santa Fe de Nuevo Mexico, Saint Faith of New Mexico, to reflect their belief that there was more treasure to be found like that of the Aztecs, whose capital lay in the valley of Mexico. Francisco Vazquez de Coronado traveled through the region in the 1540s, and in 1581, Franciscan brother Fray Augustin Rodriguez came and stayed at one of the pueblos with the hope of converting the locals. Antonio de Espejo later went in search of Rodríguez and, after discovering he had been killed, left the first European description of El Moro, where he stayed on March 11, 1583. He called it El Estanque de Pino, or the Pool of the Great Rock. The first known European to leave his mark at El Moro was Juan de Oñata, who crossed the Rio Grande on April 30th, 1598. Before he did, Oñata claimed all the territory across the river for the Spanish Empire. Oñate was governor of the region until 1610, and passed by El Moro several times, before he decided to leave his mark there in 1605. Oñate's legacy in the region is a troubled one, as shortly after his arrival he perpetrated what is known as the Acoma Massacre. The Spaniards demanded food from the Acoma Pueblo, but the Pueblo refused, as they needed the supplies themselves. A skirmish broke out that killed eleven Spaniards, including Oñate's nephew. Oñara ordered the Pueblo destroyed in January 1599, where an estimated 800 to 1,000 Acoma were killed. 500 survivors were punished harshly, all older than 12 were enslaved for 20 years, and all men over 25 had one foot amputated. This action would in part lead to his conviction by Spanish authorities on a dozen charges including cruelty to natives and colonists, He was banned from the territory for life. The inscriptions at El Marro, after Añate, tell the story of life on an extreme frontier for European colonizers. Spanish soldiers, missionaries, and governors left Paso Por aquí, passed by here with dates and sometimes a message describing the work of colonization. A mark left in 1620 says, Captain General of the provinces of New Mexico, for the King our Lord, he passed by here in returning from the Pueblos of Zuni on the 29th of July of the year 1620, and he put them at peace at their petition. Another, from 1632, records Spanish soldiers going to the Zuni Pueblos to avenge the death of a priest. In 1636, Captain Sergeant Major Juan de Archuleta and two other Spanish officers left their marks at the site. Governor Nieto, in 1629, even left poetry. The Spanish called the site El Morro, meaning the headland or the bluff. The inscriptions also illustrate the principal goals of Spanish colonization, Christianization, and subjugation. Many of the inscriptions speak of subduing the nearby Hopi and Zuni, recording the tribes anew gave their obedience, often shortly followed by reprisal trips for the murder of priests. The Spanish employed a pair of systems called command and distribution, which demanded labor and tribute from the natives in exchange for protection, Christianity, and the Spanish language. In practice, these systems amounted to a kind of slavery, and were accompanied by treatment of the natives so brutal that even some Spaniards complained. In New Mexico, the Spanish demanded tribute mostly in the form of food and forced Pueblo Indians to work without pay. The Native Americans were also caught in a power struggle between secular governors and the priests. Pedro de Peralta, the governor who succeeded Oñata, was arrested by a Franciscan friar who used power over the whole territory. Both governors and priests accused the other of mistreating the Pueblo and abusing their power. Between 1610 and 1670, at least three New Mexico governors were excommunicated and two tried by the Spanish Inquisition. Friars even helped to incite a revolt against one governor. Bernardo Lopez, governor from 1659 to 1660, and his successor, Diego de Peñalosa, both allowed Native Americans to practice their own religion, which the Franciscans didn't like. While the Spanish were turning El Moro into a record of their movements in the territory, the Pueblo were growing sick of their treatment, which seemed to go unchecked even when they appealed to the government in Mexico City. In 1680, they had finally had enough. During the 1670s, droughts, raids by Apache and other nomadic tribes and diseases, ravaged their communities. Neither the Spanish nor the priests were able to protect them, so many turned back to their old religions. This incited repression from the friars, who arrested a number of Pueblo, including one named Popé. Popé led the Pueblos to revolt as a group in August of 1680, and the Spanish were ousted from the territory. The Spanish fled to El Paso, where they tried to regroup. There are no inscriptions at El Moro dated between 1680 and 1692, but the situation didn't improve under Pope. When the Spanish returned under General Diego de Vargas in 1692, he pacified most of the region bloodlessly and left a note of his victory at El Moro. Here was the General, Don Diego de Vargas, who conquered for our holy faith and for the royal crown all the New Mexico at his expense, year of 1692. Still, the decades that followed were rife with discontent and conflict between the Spanish and the Pueblos, as evidenced in their continued notes left on the stone. The last Spanish inscription is by an Andreas Romero in 1774. We know nothing about him. New Spain made a series of reforms to help Nuevo Mexico in the late 1700s, but at the turn of the century, the mother country fell apart after the invasion by Napoleon, which was followed by decades of instability. Mexico gained its independence from Spain in 1821, but faced even greater instability. The leadership changed dozens of times in the 50 years after independence. New Mexico became increasingly isolated, plagued by Comanche raids and widespread poverty that Mexico was unwilling or unable to curb. There's only one known inscription during the Mexican period, a simple OR, 1836. If the locals camped there, they left the site undisturbed. The United States took most of New Mexico in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. U.S. soldiers and survey teams quickly poured into the region, and among them was James Hervey Simpson, a U.S. Army officer in the Corps of Topographical Engineers, the department that was merged with the Corps of Engineers during the Civil War. He was tasked with surveying a road from Santa Fe to the Navajo lands, and brought with him several artists to document the trip in watercolor, including Richard H. Kern and his brother Edward. They traveled with a contingent of American soldiers commanded by Colonel John Washington who was tasked with making a treaty with the Navajo. On September 17, 1849, they met a man on the road called Mr. Lewis, a trader familiar with the area. He offered to take Simpson to El Morro, claiming he could show them half an acre of inscriptions. Despite their doubts, Simpson, his servant called Byrd and Richard Kern, went with him. There they found both the ancient rock art and the many Spanish inscriptions. They spent two days there exploring the side, and Kern made facsimiles of the existing inscriptions. He left his own note in the stone. Lieutenant J.H. Simpson, USA, and R.H. Kern, artists, visited and copied these inscriptions. September 17th, 1849. Though he forgot the R in the inscription and had to add it afterwards. They are the first known Americans to leave their mark at El Morro. Kern left another inscription a few feet to the right of the first. R.H. Kern, August 29th, 1851. Kern was killed by Paiute Indians two years later on an expedition in Utah. The site remained an important site for soldiers and wagon trains moving west from Santa Fe into the new American territories. In 1857, a unique party came to the pool at the Rock, twenty-five camels led by Edward F. Beale, diplomat, general, and frontiersman. Beale had actually signed on to survey a road between Santa Fe and the California border, only to learn afterwards that it was expected to test the use of camels brought from Tunis. Though Beale did not leave his inscription, several in his party did, including E. Pen Long, short for Edward Pendleton Long, who left his inscription in careful calligraphy. P. Gilmer Brackenridge also left a distinct and precise inscription on the rocks. Beale claimed he would rather have a camel than a mule, but ultimately his army would decline to use them. Some did escape, and sightings of feral camels persisted in the region until after 1900. The first party of immigrants to use Beale's wagon road arrived in 1858. Many of them left their marks, including P.H. Williamson, Isaac Holland, John Udell, Rose Bailey, and 12-year-old Sally Fox. The party was attacked by members of the Mojave tribe shortly after their visit, as they were preparing to cross the Colorado River into California. And along with numerous casualties, Sally was pierced by an arrow in the chest. She survived the wound to die at 67 in California. A children's book was written based on her story and published in 1995. Many others would leave their mark on the rocks between 1858 and 1880. When the first railroad was put through the area in 1881, it passed 25 miles north of the rock, which had come to be known as Inscription Rock. This dramatically decreased the number of visitors, though some still did leave their mark. In 1906, Congress passed the Antiquities Act, which allowed Theodore Roosevelt to declare natural landmarks as monuments if they were of scientific interest. The first monument was Devil's Tower on September 24, 1906, but El Morro and Montezuma Castle were made monuments shortly after on December 8th. Officially, this meant that no more carvings were allowed at the site, although the policy was not well enforced until 1920, and some later inscriptions remain. The National Park Service now cares for the site, and in 1933, built a path that leads to the top of the Mesa, where the ruins of the Atsina Pueblo were partially excavated in the 1950s. In the 1940s, the Park Service determined that the pool was not fed by a spring, but by snowmelt and runoff. The Park Service's priority today is to document and preserve the some 2,000 inscriptions in the soft stone that they mark. The ancient rock art left by the ancestral Puebloans is still visible next to essentially a stone guest book that keeps track of four centuries of passers by, their signatures representing personal bits, snippets of their history, tiny pieces of a larger historical narrative. It now lies along New Mexico's Trails of the Ancients byway, and was declared an International Dark Sky Park in December 2019. Today, visitors can see the over 2,000 signatures, dates, and petroglyphs for no cost. If you're willing to climb a bit, you can reach the ruins of the ancient Pueblo and get a commanding view of the countryside. Even though El Morro no longer serves as a guest book, the long history of the writings in the stone and the thousands of people who still come to see them leaves us to question... What marks are we leaving to be found by future travelers?
0: Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy, a little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. So for those who don't know, uh, I was actually born in Arizona, and of course my dad lived in Arizona. Um... And like I lived there until I was 12. And so this, the Southwest has kind of always had a special, special place in my life and in my heart. And we've talked to, uh, we've, we've done some, some history there like this one. Uh, you know, I, I remember us going to a Mesa Verde. Uh, that was, I would have been pretty young. I can't remember exactly when that was, but similar kind of uh, history as to what we're looking at here. And this one, I, we went and saw the cliff dwellings there, and then you know some of these some of these places would have still have been in uh, habitation. Not at Mesa Verde, I think those were all before that. That they, I think they were uninhabited by the time the Spanish arrived. Uh, but a lot uh, of, I
1: mean, you were you were born in Flagstaff, and Walnut Canyon is there. Walnut Canyon is a yeah. uh, was an adobe dwelling. Yeah. Uh, Tuzigoot, and I mean there were uh, quite a few of them. Chaco Canyon. Uh, so I mean, you know, quite a lot of civilization going on, uh, and uh, in the southwest and and, and it, yeah. very interesting is civilization. It's very different than the you know, kind of the, the way the Native Americans are portrayed in movies and that sort of thing. Uh, and so, yeah, inscription rock is interesting, and it's interesting because it shows uh, history uh, kind of through the whole era of, of from petroglyphs and pure native times to the Spanish to the Americans to the. That's really really fascinating. And there's so many sites down there. Those sites, uh, in the Park Service, they called that the yeah. uh, they called that the Corn Belt because you find a lot of uh, stored uh, dried corn. I guess is why they called it. Uh, but uh, a lot of anthropologists and stuff mm-hmm. like that work for the, for the Park Service down there. So. Uh, uh, I mean, there's just tons of different places and sites and things. And Inscription Rock or El Morro National Monument is one of those. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's an interesting. I, you know, we we kind of in this episode, uh, I did write it. Um, but one of the one of the things that we're able to do is kind of view history, you know, through the lens of what. We can see archaeologically at this site, and it's it's a really interesting way to be able to be like, okay, this guy signed it. This is his story, and the and the way that you're able to to really tell, I mean, a story of mm-hmm. the South, the American Southwest.
1: Yeah, I mean, in colorful ways and fascinating um, ways, because you know just the way that someone signed their name. Yeah. So you have very important and famous personas there. You yeah. Have people you don't even have any idea who they were there. You got you know people all, all sorts of. I mean, it's it is an interesting record of history, uh, and there are other places like that. I mean, Josh now lives in Casper, Wyoming, and there's a there's a rock not too far away that people, you know, put their names on that rock when they were crossing on the yeah. Oregon Trail. Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot of places where – or some places where you can find that and you, some places where you find that in Europe stuff, too. Uh, but they're fascinating because they use this for hundreds of years uh, when, when everything that was going on yeah. down there in human history was changing. Uh, and you can see that through that. And then also, you know, the periods are, you know, the periods are 20, 40 years. No one, no one signs their name. And it tells you a lot about what was going on at the time, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's the the fact that we can you can really see uh, when the Spanish were <laughs> not uh, very able to control that, and when the, the you know the pueblos were in revolt and uh, alone you know that doesn't necessarily tell you a lot, but when you when you look at it uh, at what was at the site and then at the history that was going on you know it really and tells and of course there's archaeology story. there too I mean, and, there, was, there were dwellings there and, and wells yes. there and stuff
1: like that. Uh, so I mean it really is i mean it really fills in gaps uh, of a part of history that was otherwise difficult to yeah. record and that's so it's history that would have been forgotten were it not for inscription rock uh, but you're still i mean it's uh, it's almost like a game of telephone you're only getting a little bit of the story there and, and so that makes yeah. it fascinating too so it's it's fun to go there uh, and stand and look at those walls and say you know why was this person here why was that person there why did this person decide that they needed to you know carve their name in this wall
0: and some of them you know once the when the uh uh, the later, the later Europeans and even then Americans start mm-hmm. signing their names and stuff. Uh, the the different styles. In of fact, how they and there's sign something about literally is, writing is kind of of interesting. In stone.
1: I mean, I think most most people have at some point carved yeah. their name in a tree or or a, I mean, there used to, actually. I went to school at the University of Colorado. Uh, there's a famous bar and restaurant there where you were encouraged to carve your names into the table. And when the table became too carved to huh. eat at, they would they would cut the tabletop off and hang it on the wall. Uh, yeah, but place is still there. It's called the Sink. Anyway, I just here. I did. I just did a plug for the Sink. And if you're in Boulder, you got to go by the Sink. See if my name is, is is written in one of the tables on the walls anymore. I don't know. Uh, but so I mean, there's something about carving your name in stone that survives for hundreds of years after yeah. your death. That I mean, really is fascinating. You can see what the draw was then, and you can see what the draw is now. To even to to go and experience that, you
0: can't carve your name, but in anymore. That's, oh, oh yeah, 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 no, yeah, no, you yeah, shouldn't. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's not into the. Yeah, now it's a national park, and those are all historical. Uh, yeah, I was wondering, like you know, there's all these different places where you, you, bathroom stalls and stuff like that, where people, yeah, 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 people their scratch name or a, draw their. I name guess you're iron.
1: bored while you're sitting there. I don't know, but yeah, why do you scratch your name? And I mean, there still is some. I don't know if it's innately human or if it's innately American yeah. or what you know what the story is. Uh, why they still feel the need to do that? Well, I guess it's, it can't be innately American because most of most of the inscription predates American. Yeah. But I mean, that's true in Europe too. I mean, you go to the public yeah. toilets, and quite often there's name scratched in the walls uh, and i you know I don't, I don't know it's and uh as a matter of fact uh i was in uh, a canterbury cathedral and down in the in the lower part of Canterbury, there was one of the chapels, and of course, they're still giving services in Canterbury. It's been there forever. But there was a scratched into the wall, there were the names of some kids, and the dates in there were in the 1850s. So these were bored kids at Catholic Mass in the 1850s. You still go see that there. And there's a little bit of graffiti actually behind at uh, Dover Castle, uh, behind the pulpit at the the chapel at Dover Castle, which the chapel's actually older than the castle. But that, that graffiti was carved by crusaders that were leaving with Richard on, wow. the, on the, what was that? The Fifth Crusade, the one where they, uh, the the final richard crusade. Yeah. Uh and so I mean there's always been this sort of uh, thing to it and and that you have this place that centralizes it and then that that yeah. goes over over you know centuries and that you can learn from from not just the you know the breadth of the thing but from an individual signature what that person was doing and why they were there it's really interesting. Yeah.
0: The fact that we've you know we've learned uh, so, somebody's done these re- the research on you know who a yeah. lot of those people were I mean it's incredible. Yeah.
1: Someone's um, at someone's doctoral dissertation or something, but someone's yeah. going down and looking up every everything on there and seeing who if they know who it is, you know, and,
0: and if they don't, yeah. then
1: they'll say, you know, we don't know who who do that, we don't know anything about them.
0: But I remember, um, oh gosh, I'm not going to be able to remember exactly where it was, but somewhere there was a piece of graffiti uh, in England somewhere, I think, that just it's a Viking that just says Half Dan was here, and <laughs> it's. <laughs>
1: it's, it's, it's funny here. how little how little has changed and that we are still people i mean that, that really says that, that we are still
0: yeah people. i liked the we mentioned at the very beginning of this one some you know some graffiti at like pompeii and uh some of the some of the well how one of the reasons we know uh, when pompeii vesuvius exploded was because there's somebody there who like wrote a date that said i was here this day and was bored or something uh, <laughs> uh, but i People scratching their uh, their initials in like the Egyptian tombs and saying, "Ah, oh, this this was boring. This sucked." <laughs> and <laughs> you know, right. the, it's you know, we would have considered uh, it's it's funny because, of course, if you did that today, that's that's like a horrible destruction. And uh, I mean, it kind of was That yeah, ha- happens, but it just happens in the in the, you know the public restroom at the park. You know, yeah, I'd refer uh, that as to to on the to- the the walls of an Egyptian tomb. Uh, but it's it's funny that they can that we really have been. Uh, for a clearly millennia at least uh, scratching our names and things and it's it's funny that you know I've seen plenty of places where somebody just said I was here and yeah. it's you know, they were scratching well, Or into, you know, you're, you're out on a date and you're a teenager yeah. and
1: yeah you, know, you scratch you know a little heart with you and because uh,
0: yeah and that they're, they're we were essentially we've been doing that for for hundreds of years the Spanish hundreds saying paso por aquí was is, is essentially them just saying yeah I was here once Yeah yeah, we say, of course, you know, they're still they're still,
1: you know, tagging, you know, spray paint yeah. tagging. All sorts of stuff. I mean, I, I, it, it continues. I, I, I wouldn't
0: be surprised if, if someone scratched their name on a rock on the moon, you know? Yeah. you know. That's true. And eventually there'll be there'll be something special about that. And it's there is an interesting question. I thought about it, you know, um, into the the 1850s and even after. Well, up to 1920, I guess we've got some some scratches where people we were not necessarily uh, uh, protecting the site as after it became a. Uh, national monument mm-hmm. uh, we weren't necessarily protecting it the way you know we do today and so, so there are some later inscriptions mm-hmm. uh, it's it's an interesting question when exactly it went from being something you know this was a historical place where people went scratch their names and that was the purpose of it to you can't scratch your names in it because we're protecting those yeah yeah isn't historical anymore. It it's is. I mean, it's part of the history of the parks. Actually, I'm. You know,
1: I'll have a topic out in not too long. But we had a park called Fossil cycad and uh, that had these very unique fossils. And essentially, they were people would just come and collect them until there wasn't anything there anymore. So they it stopped being a park. Uh, and so you're you're right. I mean, if we if we just if we said, hey, you know, this is part of history, go scratch your name in the wall. Then I mean, it would be we would lose the other history part yeah. of it. So I mean, you kind of wish you could go just down to the bottom of the hill where there's some rocks that we don't know, and say, "Okay, put your modern ones in there," and then because I mean, who at some point someone's going to be excavating our garbage dumps to learn stuff about us.
0: Well, some someday someone will probably look at something like a bathroom stall someplace and be able to learn information just like we're learning it off yeah. this uh it's a little weird to think that something like that could become a historical you know a historical yeah, yeah. everything artifact. if you leave
1: that piece that it might end up being something I, it's hard to imagine that you to be the archaeologist that's digging up our bathroom stall to see who scratched you know for a good time call <laughs> <laughs> someone's
0: gonna find that phone number and then try to look up in the records you try to look up figure out who it is you, it's, 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 it's gonna be a whole big thing yeah <laughs> that's embarrassing uh, <laughs> um but you know we it's it is a good question you know when when do we decide that you know it's it stops being a part of history and to to some extent you know we're never able to really um extract ourselves from history completely yeah. and it, some of those choices are somewhat uh you know I mean, that's the thing that kind of occurs to you as a historian, yeah. as you study history, as much time
1: as you and I spent studying history yeah. and writing history, is that, you know, at some point, what we're doing now will be history. And, yeah. you know, things, things that seem like a big deal, now you don't know. I mean, I don't know today if the things that we think are a big deal today are going to be 100 years from now, they're going to be a big deal for 100 years from now, it's just going to be forgotten. And that, you know, someday, uh, well, that was in uh, that was in Raiders of the Last Ark, too. Perhaps yeah. even someday, even you, too, will be interesting. Or, uh, you know, uh, you know someday, you know, we might, might be history ourselves and uh they'll uncover a cache of the history guy and find out all sorts
0: of things they didn't know and that'll be an interesting but it's you know one of the things i found because i I read presidential biographies and all those presidents in the uh the 19th century those 1800s presidents so many of them uh, people would struggle to even know their name yeah and yet uh when you read those books every single one of them no matter how ridiculous you might or unimportant you might think that president was there were people who thought that that was the man who was going to save the country
1: that was going to save, you know important things were going on at the yeah. time they were talking about those issues they thought they were important it was highly contested elections yeah uh and now i, I think i in, i think a dave barry slept here dave barry said something like there were a whole bunch of presidents there i don't know but I, i'm pretty sure one of them was named rutherford is how he, <laughs> how he explains yeah. the, the whole latter half of the, the 19th century which and yeah, and at the time, you know, so, you know, we the things we think are important today, we don't know if they'll be important today. And, and things we might think are trivial today, like whatever's scratched on the on the toilet, uh, yeah. might be the thing that in 100 or 1,000 years is the way that they know us best. Yeah, it's, and, yeah, and inscription rock really does. It gives you that kind of feeling of time. Yeah, uh, that's kind of feeling that you can do something small, and that could be remembered as history. And you're right. At what point do we stop thinking this is graffiti in a place where it's got your names in the wall? And we start saying, hey, this is history yeah. uh, that we real I mean, I'm sure... Uh, The abbot at the church wasn't all that happy that that, uh, those kids were scratching on the side of the wall there. But now those, you know, those those scratches are are history and they say something about what's, you know... uh, I guess kids were bored in mass, you know, a hundred years ago too, or hundred fifty years ago. But it's uh, a weirdly really human connection, though, isn't it? It is. The... It is a weirdly because you could see kids doing the exact same thing today. You know, yeah. I, I find a school desk that hasn't that doesn't have gum under one side and some sort of you know writing and scratching on it
0: on the top, you know? With a pocket knife or something like that. Yeah. Those
1: are actually kind of collectible. The school desk when I was there had a wooden top, you know, and a metal desk. I mean, now now they're pretty much tables. But yeah. had you know had a, had, a, had a kind of like a metal form, a wooden chair, and a wooden top on, on a single desk, and those with stuff scratched into them and, and written stuff like that. those are very collectible now uh, mm-hmm. and you know people because they have their kits, you know and, and yeah. so it's it's funny because uh, it, it's quite possible that when you were in third grade, And you were bored in class and that you, you know, use your pencil to scratch beneath the uh, the lacquer uh, and draw a little comic or the, you know, whatever girl that you were crushing on or whatever. It's possible that that was sold, uh, you know, when your school moved to tables and then that has moved around through and that somewhere it's sitting in an antique shop. And someone's going to think the fact that you scratched that on there gives it value. And as far as you know, some rich person's home has a little desk. I don't know what they do with them when you buy them because they don't seem to have a lot of furniture value but the, someone has a desk they're saying look at that
0: special desk that I got and that was that was what you wrote in 1976 so let's say this was this yeah. was the kind of thing that kids in the 1970s scratched yeah, into the yeah that's how it works or
1: so, you can go to the sink in Boulder and you can look at yeah. the tables on the wall I assume the tables are just still there if you look closely you might find that uh, yeah. that Someone sort of semi-famous uh, that calls himself the history yeah. guy actually scratched uh, something on that table.
0: Yeah, well before well before you had any idea you were going to be the yeah. history guy. Yeah, long before. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Who knew? I'm, I'm sp- sure
1: there's I'm sure there's people become more famous than I that scratched their name on the table of the sink. I wonder if they ever find those now and again. Go, wait.
0: Yeah, try to go track thing. those down and be like, ah, oh, look at this one. This is a... El Moro is, is an interesting place, too, because we think about, like, you know, Independence Rock, which is the one that's close to here in Casper that they happen to pass by, and um, as a as a site, El Moro was important because they talk about it as you know being the only source of of water mm-hmm. on this this ancient trail. And mm-hmm. I mean, in a desert, that's what that's where they are. There's not mm-hmm. there's not necessarily there's a reason that they, they were water. there. There's a
1: reason that they stopped there. Yeah. Uh, and and you you can guess that that animals were doing that long before yeah. people were. And it goes it goes from you know uh, ancient Stone Age petroglyphs yeah. uh, up into like you said some of those go up all the way into the 1920s. But I mean, yeah. at least through, at least through the 19th century you know the dude that had
0: the only camels that the army ever tried in the United yeah. States came through with his
1: camels and and uh, they, you know they they put their name in the wall
0: I think that's a, that's an entertaining one I think you you did an episode about the, about the, the camels we have mentioned a couple of times I mentioned the camels uh, well I mentioned it in the Gatson
1: purchase but actually the person that uh uh that was really you know pushing the camels was the secretary of war huh. uh and that was um uh uh, uh Jefferson Davis, right? That was the guy that was president of the Confederacy. He was yeah. secretary of war. Yeah. He thought the camels were a great idea. Uh, and so the camels were pushed by Jeff Davis. And then, you know, they lost their advocate, I guess, when they seceded, I suppose. You can see why someone might push the camels there. I mean, gosh, they're they're used very widely. Makes it's interesting because we also don't know. I mean, there was a feral population of camels yeah. because of that. And we don't know when they finally disappeared. And I wonder what happened. Uh, apparently, they're not there anymore, but... Uh, it would be certainly something if you were if you were driving up in the southwest
0: somewhere and, and some camels would buy. You'd be like, Wait, whoa. Wait. That doesn't seem right. Uh well it wouldn't have been the first time that, you know, an endemic population was established oh, yeah. by something like yeah. that. Yeah,
1: I, I yeah, hear there, there were wallabies in, in, look this one up, there were wallabies in Scotland that had been uh, oh, so, oh, yeah, and they that's... lived in, and, and they, they were up there for a very long time until they had a couple of harsh winters in a row.
0: I think that, and they the talk about that there were that. there was they a pride of lions that was living outside of London for a little while. Yeah, or, the big cats people. in, in yeah, and, yeah.
1: Well, the the, the uh, Rocky Mountain Goats up by Mount Rushmore, I don't, everybody knows I used to work at Mount Rushmore, right? The Rocky Mountain Goats there are not native, they escaped really? from a zoo in the 1920s, huh. actually they're a Canadian species, and now they are quite common
0: there in the black hills yeah, i was gonna say i've i've been to mount rushmore and i've seen the goats i have i have seen the goats i helped count goats one summer when i was working for the park service there was a
1: survey going on and i participated
0: in the goat survey to an extent yeah. are the goats causing damage up there i mean are they bad for this is more like trying to understand the health of the population but no they don't do a lot of damage there's nothing just damage. goats but, I mean, we think of them, we really think of them as part of the population. They're, they're not native. They escape from uh, yes. a zoo. It's interesting. I know that there's, um, there's a difference between like an invasive species and then a, a species that has come into the area. Invasive, you know, they usually mean it's, it's causing some kind of harm to the, the, uh, mm-hmm. the local ecology. Good, good example is that on Catalina Island, they have bison.
1: Uh, and they were put there for, they were filming a movie. They were filming a Western on Catalina Island. And then the movie, the movie went out of money or something like that. And so they just left and it, it's heard a bison grew. Uh, and so for a while, that was a big tourist attraction to go to Catalina, this channel island off California to see the to bison. See bison. But they, uh, they eat the native plants. Uh, and so now the, the last time I was there, and that was a good time ago, they had drastically reduce, reduced the number of bison uh, because they were trying to cut off their food supply, keep them from eating these native yeah. plants. So who would have guessed that you get bison on the Channel Islands that, uh, and that they would be... I think they were considered an invasive species. I don't know if there's still oh. bison on, on, on yeah, I I that, Catalina. I have not years. So I'm sure one of our listeners here has been to Catalina recently and knows that they still have bison running around the yeah. island. But at one point, you go there, you see big herds of bison, and then you go there, huh. and you're lucky if you saw a single bison. And You still wonder and why are there bison... How would it swim? No. It was, it was carried there by a film crew. We put it there, and... <laughs> We did, yeah. Well, I mean, ask the Australians about rabbits and cane toads. Yes, I'm going to say they've got I mean, one, one enough of those. were, were their, uh... native. Both of those we were. We well, that and we was, with the rabbits. Uh, we talked about what was what was that episode? It was about the uh, Tanager Expedition. Uh, one yeah. of the one of those islands off of uh, off of Hawaii it was devastated because the the people that were there uh, farming guano had brought rabbits, and the rabbits ate all the all the, and killed all the all the birds died because the rabbits ate all the plants.
0: Wow, rabbits destructive.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, we sent a guy to kill all the rabbits, too. That was that's the Tanger Expedition. That's that episode. That's a good episode, yeah. too. Who'd have known that we'd somehow tie that to, I don't know to, how... we uh, To uh, El Moro, yeah. I really don't know how the
0: conversation has wandered here. But that's you what know, we have podcasts, right? Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV
1: uh, you know, it's always because when you're, you know, there's always, you know, so many choices. So I watch It's called The Wonder of Dogs. Uh, and it's funny, because if you know me, you know, I'm a cat person. But that doesn't mean that I don't like dogs. I love dogs. I love animals of all kind. I really do. But uh, uh, so The Wonder of Dogs is a series. So there's several of them in it. But uh, it, uh I mean, there was, I mean, and it's just fun to watch is people a lot of people are very you know proud of their of their pets uh, and it talks a lot about it's talking about how you know essentially how one species of wolf became you know something as diverse as you know the the Pekingese and the you know, Mastiff. Master but I mean it talks a lot about specific breeds and why those breeds bred the way they were and and uh, how how they've changed over time and I mean it's just if you're a dog lover I'm sure you love it but it's really just fascinating to see how much human culture and human decisions can change an animal species Uh, While at the same time, just kind of having, you know, every every scene is like, oh, dog, cutie. Uh, And uh, these people love their dogs. And there's these two dogs that are one of them's huge and one of them's Uh teeny and they're best friends. And (laughs) I think it's a a must for dog lovers, because uh, if you really don't know the history of breeds and how we got to where we are, it's really fun to watch. And also to know that if you've got I mean, if you've got an English Bulldog today, it doesn't look like. I mean, those were originally yeah. bred for bull baiting. I mean, they were, dogs were literally bred to attack bulls. And those dogs that were attacking the bulls look very different yeah. than an English bulldog today. So, I mean, I understand that. It's really interesting.
0: Yeah. So, so,
1: watch the series and you'll find out
0: why. That's what you know, I loved it. So, so, what have you been watching on Magellan TV? So, what I watched actually is called Last Call for Titan, and uh, it's mostly about Cassini. Uh, is what it is. What it really talks about, the Cassini-Huygens mission. You know, it actually really reminded me of the uh, some of the History Guy episodes that we've done on space stuff, uh, like Pioneer 10 and Voyager. It really talks about the history of how we built this thing and what was so interesting about, you know, the Cassini probe. And it was such an interesting space mission. And then it's also, I mean, it talks a lot about what kind of things we might do in the future with how we're going to if we do expand into the solar system and stuff like that, uh, it's, it starts out talking about, uh, we've colonized Mars and now we're moving to Titan. Uh, but Titans a really interesting. It's a really, really interesting moon because it's, it's got methane and it's one of the places they've talked about where there's possibly some kind of native life because of the fact that there's the, the building block blocks for life. And so it's, it's interesting to, to think about what that, what that might mean, but it's a really interesting, uh, mo- uh show, uh, It is a really interesting documentary that talks about kind of how uh, we've discovered Titan, what we've learned about Titan. And I think it's really worth a watch, especially if you're kind of interested in that part of what we do with History Guy. Just like everything on Magellan, it's a really awesome thing to watch. Got Great computer animations and stuff like that. And as you can see from what we just talked about today, you can go from watching uh, Mm -hmm. The Wonder of Dogs and learning why bulldogs are called bulldogs, and uh, then you can go and find out about Cassini.
1: Okay, but kissing. Yeah, that
0: I, I love to on TV.
1: Uh, and what we found on The History Guy is a lot of things, you know, crime or science or or space or whatever, also are history. Yeah. So there's a fantastic history collection on Magellan TV, but there's also fantastic nature documentaries. There are fantastic uh, science documentaries. There's true crime. There's all sorts of stuff. And I think every time we come, when we talk about the stuff we choose, I don't, I don't know. I think people maybe expect that if, if you and I log on to Magellan TV, we watch a World War II video. Uh, but, it, but, it, but you get there and you can watch all sorts of things. They all tie to history. If you yeah. love The History Guy, you're going to love Magellan TV. And mm-hmm. I, I I sincerely, we talk about it all the time, but I sincerely, I love my subscription to Magellan TV, and I use
0: it all the time. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of the History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash History Guy, where we will always have a deal for you. Sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash History Guy. Next up, the History Guy tells the interesting and dramatic story of Spanish Canada. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the History Guy. Before
1: the British and the French and the Dutch started building their colonies, Spain was the leader and primary claimant to European authority in the Americas. Under the authority of the Pope, they laid claim to huge swath of territory across the American continents, from the southern tip of South America all the way to southern Canada. But over time, Spanish power waned and other powers, the British, the French, even the Russians, started to encroach on territory that the Spanish thought was theirs. In 1789, the Spanish attempted to enforce their authority at the extreme edge of the territory that they nominally controlled, and an argument over the control of one of the most remote places on earth nearly led to war in Europe. It is history that deserves to be remembered. Spain, by financing Christopher Columbus's expedition that ended with the European discovery of the Caribbean, claimed nearly the entirety of the New World for themselves, especially the entirety of the Pacific coast. Their claim was supported by the papal bull inter Caetera, which divided the western hemisphere into Portuguese and Spanish zones. Portugal and Spain debated the exact location of the dividing line, eventually moving it west in the Treaty of Tordesillas, While it would take several hundred years for any European to successfully cross modern Canada or the United States, in 1513, Vasco Nunez de Balboa first sighted the Pacific Ocean from American shores, which would lead the Spanish to lay claim to the entire coastline. European monarchies instituted the doctrine of discovery as a means to legitimize colonization efforts, ignoring the fact that the lands that they laid claim to were already inhabited. In an effort to secure the right of prior discovery, several Spanish voyages explored the coast. In 1542, a Spanish voyage reached at least as far as northern California, while a further journey in 1602 reached the modern coast of southern Oregon. Spain, however, was largely absorbed with draining wealthy South American states, while other nations began colonizing the east coast of the modern United States and Canada. Exploration of the east coast of the American continued, but it wasn't until 1741 that Russian explorer Vitus Bering brought European influence to the far northern Pacific coast after sailing along the southern coast of Alaska, a voyage that is the topic of another episode of The History Guy. The Spanish immediately recognized the Russian exploration as a threat to their claims in the New World. To combat Russian influence, the Spanish began aggressively sending explorations north from their settlements in Mexico and their most northern province in Alta, California. Beginning in 1774, Spanish expeditions were sent to northern Canada and modern Alaska, clear to Kodiak Island, to shore up their claims of prior discovery. By 1775, Spanish explorers had reached the mouth of the Columbia River, which divides much of modern Oregon and Washington State. The 1774 expedition was meant to place crosses with bottles containing claims of the area, but thanks to weather, nothing was left behind, although some were left behind successfully in 1775. Spanish exploration also included new settlements, which were established as far north as San Francisco. Simultaneously, exploration from other corners was beginning to encroach on the region. French and then British fur trappers were slowly working their way west, while by sea, British explorer James Cook reached the region in 1778. In 1774, the Spanish navy ship Santiago reached the modern Nucca Sound on the western coast of modern Vancouver Island. The Spanish didn't land, although they did trade with some natives who paddled out to the ship. In 1778, James Cook reached the same sound, this time landing and speaking with the locals at some length. He recorded the natives, called it Nutka Sound, although that isn't the native name. One explanation that he may have mistaken the native word for around, meaning island, but it isn't clear how Cook misunderstood. The First Nation settlement on Nutka Island is Yuquat, meaning where the wind blows from all directions. The settlement on Nuck Island was for generations the traditional summer home of a group of First Nations people and was where McQuinnah, the Nukanuf chief, lived with as many as 1500 other people. McQuinna may have met Cook, although Cook did not record the leader's name and dubbed the place Friendly Cove. Nuka represented an excellent site for European trade, providing a protected anchorage for trading ships. It would quickly become one of the most important sites in the region in the growing competition between European nations. Despite the Spanish claim on the region, beginning around 1785, there was a concerted effort by British traders supported by the government to develop a fur trade on the Pacific coast, inspired by Cook's visit there. Spain vigorously opposed English efforts. By 1787, the Spanish learned that the Russians were preparing a force to occupy and establish a settlement at Nutca. In 1788, John Mears, a British fur trader, arrived at Yucat in the hopes of building a permanent settlement in the area. Mears would later claim that he purchased a spot of land from Maquinna and built a trading post on the island. Though British, Mears ships flew Portuguese flags, were registered in Macau, was actually to avoid trouble with the East India Company as British ships needed permits to trade in the region. While there, Mears men built the sloop Northwest America, the first non-Indigenous ship built in the region. Mears traveled around the region claiming sections for the British. He informed Maquina he would return the following year to build more houses. The Viceroy in Mexico was extremely interested in pushing off the various powers and instructed his men to show Russia and English vessels the superior right which we have for continuing such establishments on the whole coast. He referenced Cook, who arrived four years after the first Spanish arrival at Nootka, and the fact that Cook purchased two silver spoons at Nootka, supposedly stolen from the earlier Spanish voyage. The Spanish sent Sub-Lieutenant Esteban Jose Martinez with two ships to enforce Spanish sovereignty in 1789. Martinez was instructed to occupy the Sound, build a fort and settlement, and generally make it clear to both the British and the Russians that the Spanish meant to defend the region. Martinez established a settlement dubbed Santa cruz de Nuca, the first European settlement in modern British Columbia, and a fort called Fort San Miguel with ten cannons. They had orders to prevent any other nation from intercourse and commerce with the natives. When Martinez arrived on May 5th, 1789, there were three ships already in the Sound. The first American ships to reach the region had wintered there, the Columbia Redaviva and the later Washington. Also present was one of Mears' party's ships, the Iphigenia Nubiana. While the Spanish were busy fortifying their position, Mears had returned to China, where he formed a partnership called the Associated Merchants Trading to the northwest coast of America. Martinez remained on good terms with the Americans, but he seized the British ship and arrested its captain. Martinez released the captain after a short time and told him to leave. The British ship vacated the sound promptly. On June 8th, the northwest America returned to Nutka Sound and was immediately seized. Martina renamed the ship Santa Gertrudis la Magna, and used it to explore the region. Legally, Martinez claimed that the Northwest America's captain had abandoned the ship and that the vessel was held as security for supplies that Martinez had given the Evanginia when he sent out the crew packing. On June 24th, Martinez performed a formal act of sovereignty, claiming the whole coast up to Nutka for Spain. On June 14th, the British ship Princess Royal arrived, but Martinez apparently did not feel that he had the power to order it to leave, and instead relations were relatively polite. Princess left on July 1st. Almost immediately after, a second British ship arrived, the Argonaut, under Captain Colnett. He had orders from Mears to construct a solid establishment, and not one that is to be abandoned at pleasure, after the temporary house that had built the year before. But now the Argonaut arrived to find the whole sound declared a Spanish port. The following events are described differently by the various people involved, but the situation quickly escalated. On July 2nd or 3rd, depending on the source, Martinez was welcomed aboard the Argonaut, Martinez pressed Colnut on the English captain's intentions, and Colnut said that he came as governor of this port to prevent other nations from taking part in this fur trade, and to take possession of this port of Nutca and its coast for the King of England. This clearly was directly at odds with Martinez's mission. The Argonaut was taken into the port and secured to one Spanish and one American ship. Colnett would later say that he had been tricked into entering the port by Martinez, who told him that the Spanish needed to purchase some supplies. The parties then argued over who had the better claim to the port. The following day, Colnett described the quarrel that then broke out. Entering Martinez's cabin, Colnett presented his papers, which Martinez declared were forged, and that the Englishman should not set sail until he pleased. Colnett, seeing the duplicity of the Spaniard, was speaking to his interpreter when a group of soldiers stormed the room, knocked him down, and arrested him. Colnett complained that Martinez often threatened me with instant death by hanging me as a pirate. Of course, Martinez tells the tale differently. According to him, Colnett refused to show his papers and placed his hand two or three times on his sword as if to threaten me in my own cabin and shouted damn Spaniard at him. According to Martinez, he had Colnett arrested as a prisoner of war to avoid the shedding of blood. Soon afterwards, Martinez captured the Princess Royal, which was also taken into the port. Imprisoned in a small space as the Argonaut was repaired by the Spaniards, Colnett threw himself from a porthole and nearly drowned. Meanwhile, one of McQuinnah's kinsmen met Martinez on a ship and yelled at the Spanish, for which he was shot and killed. It's unclear what happened One version relates that Martinez fired a warning shot and the sailor shot the man thinking that Martinez had meant to hit him. It's unclear what the man was even mad about, but McQuinnah thud the sound. Other accounts suggest that Martinez was trying to hit the man. The British ships were sent to Mexico as prizes, and then on July 29th, orders came from Mexico for Netka to be abandoned. Before he left in October, Martinez also captured an American ship, which was just arriving. Only McQuinnah and his people were in Nuka in the winter of 1789-90, but the crisis was ballooning globally. The British government took a hard line, demanding the release of their men and ships and an indemnity, and refused to recognize Spain's control of the northwest coast. Madrid, meanwhile, found the British position incredible, believing their own claims to be unassailable. In 1790, the Spanish sent a new force to reoccupy Nutka, and John Mears in London published his memorial decrying Spain's actions. British politicians were soon yelling for armament. War with Spain seemed a real possibility, and Britain delivered an ultimatum. The global scene was itself in flux. Spain's traditional ally, France, was literally in the middle of revolution. Louis was still king, but the National Assembly opposed war. Britain had lost face in their fight with America and suspected that war with unstable France was possible. France was sympathetic to Spain, but in no position to fight a war with Britain. Spain was no longer the powerful empire it once was and lacked the resources to single-handedly defeat the British. In Mexico, the Viceroy released the captured American ship and on July 9th released Colnet and the British ships as well. The diplomatic maneuvering remains shrouded in mystery, and missing reports had led to a belief that official correspondence, especially between Britain and France, were destroyed. In October, Spain and Britain held the first of the Nutca Conventions, led by George Vancouver on the British side, and Juan Francisco de la Bodega y Quadra for the Spanish. Averting war, the buildings and tracts of land at Nutca Sound were to be restored to Britain. British authorities believed that all of the sound had been sold to Mears. Quadra and Vancouver spent some time with McQuinn at Yuquat. The treaty also defined the rights of their governments and citizens at Nuka and elsewhere. And that trade on the coast was open to all nations. Two more conventions were held in the 1790s. The second provided John Mears with $210,000 in compensation for his real and imagined damages. And the third signed on January 11, 1794, which led to the abandonment of Nuka entirely by all parties neither shall form any permanent establishment in the said port, or claim any right of sovereignty, read the treaty. This was partially because by 1794, both nations were allied against France, and the Napoleonic Wars forced Nuttka into the background. Despite the treaty that avoided war, important questions were less unanswered, notably the border of the Spanish claims. Spain wanted that border to be at the latitude of the Strait of Juan de Fuca, where Victoria, British Columbia sits today, but the British wanted it to be closer to San Francisco. Most importantly, the decision altered international law by requiring actual occupation of a region to claim sovereignty, and not just the right of first discovery. The United States acquired Spain's claims to the region in 1819 under the Adams-Onus Treaty and argued they had acquired exclusive right to the region. In diplomacy over the region, Britain cited the Nucka Conventions, and the issue wasn't solved until the 1846 Oregon Treaty. McQuinnah and his people continued to live in the region, although they faced removal and residential schools under Canadian law. Though small in number, descendants of McQuinnah's people still live and maintain tourist sites
0: in the area today. So I think that, you know, while to, to some extent you know, the, the history of Spain, certainly in South America and in Mexico, but I the term Spanish Canada seems pretty shocking. Uh-huh. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think people are surprised to find out the role of Spain played from Louisiana and Florida. But I mean, Canada. Uh, and this, this story is so crazy because, I mean, you've got natives uh, who had to have been confused <laughs> the whole time. And then you've got Canadians and Brits and Russians. Uh, and Americans all arguing over who this island belongs. Yeah, which to which yeah. I think that and perhaps. It, and in the end, we just decided it doesn't belong to anybody. <laughs> it's the craziest story. But yeah, who knew? It's not just that Spanish ships reached there; is that they made a concerted effort to protect their claim to this island off of Vancouver. It's an absolutely extraordinary bit of history yeah. that I think people have no idea. Yeah, I don't think anybody sitting around in Vancouver is thinking about the Spanish history of Vancouver. Yeah, it's
0: it's a really interesting story, and the fact that the the Spanish were so involved in it, and they sent—I mean, they yeah, sent—it was important. I mean, they were they were yeah. defending that. Yeah. They sent people far enough north, uh, you know, even toward toward Alaska. It's a little interesting because, of course, I, to some of the Spanish colonial stuff, you know, some one of the one of the Spaniards shows up on the Pacific Coast, and he's like. All of this is mine. <laughs> All of this belongs <laughs> to Spain, and I, and I'm like, what? You can uh-huh. see like 15 miles down the coast. You, you think that the fact that you reached it in Mexico means you uh, control wherever that coast goes? From a
1: European perspective, that that was claiming the right yep. to negotiate with the natives. I mean, you hear it as if they were claiming yeah. other people's lands. And obviously, that's what happened. I mean, there certainly was a conquest. But uh, when he was saying yeah. that, he was not claiming that I have legal right to the lands of the natives. Uh, he was claiming that other Europeans yeah. had no right to come here and claim you know negotiation. Which with
0: ultimately them. was so I, always a difficult thing to actually protect. And I mean, that's what we, yeah. that's what this whole...
1: Well, I mean, when you're one dude in one boat and you're trying to yeah. cover all of, you know, all of the Western United States, then yeah, is that, you know, you're going to be outnumbered sometimes.
0: Yeah, this, this whole episode... But yeah, it was it was...
1: it was it was, it was hard to protect. But I mean, it, to a point, Europeans respected that. I mean, the whole Louisiana Purchase, well, I mean, they didn't actually sell us land. They sold us the rights to negotiate with the native nations yeah. on that land. And so it's it's really kind of interesting that if you look at you know that huge vast part that they call Louisiana that at some point it was owned by France and then it was owned by Spain and it was owned by France it was sold to the United States and that the other european powers more or less respected that but then again, when that reached all the way out to Oregon, uh, you know, then the British were like, "Well, you know, you know, we got to that side of Canada yeah. too." And the Russians were like, "Well, we're all the way down at a... So I mean, there there are points where you're you're all coming from distance points and you're you're standing on that spot saying, "I claim all of this." That those were that those overlap. This is an example yeah. of that. And there were all these uh, and arguments. It's, it's, it's interesting because it was a harbor of enough value yeah. uh, that, that that there were reasons that they were that they were fighting over who got to control it.
0: It's it's an important harbor, but the the truth is that that island, you know, you know, probably never would have heard of it. Uh, otherwise. And it just happened to be a place where, I mean, everybody showed up. It's funny how they were trying Mm -hmm. to secure their claims, where the the Spanish sent, you know, these ships up and down the coast and they were supposed to, like, leave crosses and jars with uh, uh, writing in it that said, oh, we were here first. And and they never, none of that ever ended up really working out. But they they really tried hard to say, first of all, that priority of discovery, that was a really big deal, Mm -hmm. um, especially at the time. But the the Spanish, I mean, they would always been playing an interesting game with how they made their claims in the 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 americas because they mm-hmm. also had the papal bull that said oh it's um so the the bull and then yeah they make the treaty of Tordesillas which relies on the the, uh, yeah. the papal bull so, so spanish spanish gets west and, and portugal gets yeah. east uh, the problems those two bump into each other at some point you know there was some, well and there was some disagreement but i even I mean, as soon as they said that the uh, there were there was responses like the the king of france was like you know i oh, as if the Pope thinks that he can he can tell me that the this mm-hmm. land given to the the world by God or whatever isn't that I don't have some claim to it. Um, yeah. It,
1: well, it's true. I mean, New France uh, and New England were both in violation oh, yeah. of the Treaty of yeah, and which and, uh, they both uh,
0: actively uh, uh, refused to acknowledge uh, was a was a real. Mm-hmm. Which.
1: Well, and at times the Spanish were attacking the yeah. you know the French and American colonies in North America. we we've, we've taught a lot of these yeah. stories. And it's it's really fascinating, but it is it's funny the hubris of these Europeans who have managed to send maybe a hundred dudes <laughs> over in a in a rowboat, you know, in a wooden boat, and we're arguing over you know who owns Montana, yeah. you know, from 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 the coast of Maine, and we're like ah that's mine, uh, and that you know that we that we you know dare to proclaim that that's I mean that's, I and that right. you don't get a more you know almost just bizarre crazy example of that than when you're talking about Nutka Island. Which I mean, there's a population. You can still go visit Nuka yeah. today, and there's a, there's a, there's some tourist uh, visitation of Nuka today, but uh, but I mean, you know, it's not like a major port or anything like that today. But I mean, it's 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 interesting at the time and the way that they interact with the Native Americans and and uh, play. You know, the Native Americans are playing them against each other at various times, and then they are sometimes they're friendly, sometimes it's 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 conflict, uh, and it's it's a. Uh, uh, it really is kind of like a little microcosm in a totally forgotten part yeah. of the world. I mean, I don't think most people in North America even know it's there. But it, it's this little microcosm of, of all of the European conflict,
0: uh, you know, with the yeah.
1: between the European powers and with the native powers over the Americas. And it's all yeah. on this, this island off of Vancouver.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Spain had made all those claims. And then they didn't really start panicking until they hear, oh, Russia's russia's going the other yeah. direction and then suddenly they're like oh, yeah. oh oh, oh,
1: well i mean if you think about it russia has a much stronger claim there than oh they're Spain, way closer right? i mean yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like literally walking off their own coast into... and we did an episode on yeah. that too by the way on vitus bearing which is i mean that's that that is some harsh weather exploring if you were if you were following the chain of the illusions to get to, to california well, and that's and a your, it ends
0: uh, up being a pretty rough uh
1: yeah yeah a lot of them frozen, starved yeah. to death uh, you know whereas you know plenty of Spaniards died of scurvy, you know, but, uh, yeah, it's kind of funny how, how did Spain wandering over from, you know, from the American East Coast and, and, and uh, Russia, where it was a huge part of that expedition was getting their yeah. stuff to the other side of Russia. Yeah. I mean, to to go from Moscow to that coast and then from Kamchatka to wander across to the... Uh, it, uh, I mean, how those that those two doing that finally bumped into... It's like a giant game of civilization, yeah. right?
0: Where you're like, how did that boat get Accidentally yeah. run into each other at the... But it is kind of interesting yeah. to think that there was a point there where uh, somewhere, no one agreed on the border, but there was a border between Russia and Spain in... Canada or Alaska. Yeah, yeah, or,
1: between Russia, America, and yeah. Spain, and uh, and 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 both of those end up being, for various reasons in various ways, ceded to the United States.
0: It, so uh, you know, ultimately, these these two stories they, they tell a really different story of kind of the rise and the fall of the Spanish Empire, and mm-hmm. how how they were in control and not in control of uh, of mm-hmm. North America, Spanish North America, and yeah. You know, they actually, weirdly, in some ways, had better control over the coastline just because it was easier to send a boat. Uh, you know, they didn't have to fight uh, through the through the deserts because they they had troubles and they had troubles everywhere. And of course, they they had problems with the natives up here. They ended up shooting the the chief's brother and yeah, yeah,
1: or some sort of argument. And I mean, that happened. I mean, there was mistrust between yes. the two. So even where even where there was an attempt yeah. at peaceful relations, quite often it would end up yeah. you know turning into something violent. And of course, you know it devastated the native population of Nutka Island, eventually everything that went on there. And then the Europeans decided that, that well, how interesting that the Napoleonic Wars is yeah. what really ended the conflict over Nutka because everybody that was fighting over Nutka suddenly had become allies. Yeah. And they said, I don't want to fight over Nutka. So they just abandoned it. And essentially uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it becomes abandoned yeah, for I mean, the rest of the time. Yeah. Well, and so you got this native population, you come there, they don't want you there. You come there, you park there, you claim it, you, then you build, you know, you build an economy around it. And one day you just abandon it. You don't know, think about it. And, yeah, this it really is. It talks about the high water mark yeah. of the Spanish Empire. But it also talks about how far from the British Empire was yeah. it from that point. And it's interesting that, you know, that that was impacted by they weren't actually Russians on Nuka, but they there was impacted by the Russians yeah. as part of what drove the and then that the Americans become involved too. Yeah. I mean it's 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 like inscription rock. I mean it really is this record over yeah. time of how things were changing. Uh and uh, and you know now I understand it's it's beautiful to go visit the island today, but I mean it's uh it's kind of almost Unimaginable how very much these people that had sailed in a boat a long way away changed the whole history yeah. of the people who lived there. And you, know, you think, but I mean, this was, this was my home before you showed and up. And it
0: was an incredible—I mean, it was an incredible distance away. I mean, this was as almost as remote as it could get from oh, any of these yeah. i mean even russia uh like you said you know it was right there across from lands that russia uh, nominally controlled and i mean they even had people there you know they had some russian guy who's saying he controls kamchatka but as we learned in the Vitus bearing episode it uh, didn't always mean what, what it sounds like it oh, means oh yeah i mean
1: russia's this huge yeah. vast and there's this vast steps in between you know the populated part of russia and the and the yeah. the, the, the eastern coast
0: of it took them forever just to took uh, like three so years i mean so to... for
1: for for um, and and I you know I don't know if there were if there's any visitation by yeah. Japanese or Koreans or stuff like that I mean you wouldn't be surprised if at some point in history there's at least some pocket. Uh, it is I mean this was was extremely remote yes. except for the people oh, who yeah. lived there who thought that you know that was home yes. right you know and then you kill the chief's brother you know and and so at times uh, you know. Over uh, So it is, and, and it's, uh, it's a great story. Yeah. It's a great story. Uh, this is another episode Josh wrote, by the way. Josh is a, as a senior writer for the, so I write a lot of the episodes of The History Guy. Josh writes a lot of the episodes of The History Guy. And it's really, it's just a great story. You know, you know the British guy's in his, in yeah. his uh, cabin, and they're arguing over whether, you know, why he was arrested and whether that was legal. And, you know, the British guy says, oh, they just arrested me. And the Spanish guy says he drew his sword on yep, me. And, but, and we're doing that all over this island, you know, uh, talk about the far-flung end of the world. Yeah, and, and like kind of like the conflict over San Juan yeah. Island, which isn't that far from there. It just kind of came down to neither one of them wanted a war yeah. over it. So they're
0: like, ah, okay. Well, Spain was never really you know, in a – in a, Spain wanted to project power, but the truth is they were not really in a position. And yet they, they really remarkably did project power to Nutka, as we see. And yeah. he was arresting everybody. Yeah, and, they, and
1: and they tried to. But, I mean, they, you know, the other thing about Spain, it wasn't just that the empire was in decline or whatever at that point. I mean, Spain realized that the, the financial value was in yeah. South and Central America. And, and uh, there weren't huge you know, silver mines like Potosi, uh, you know, off of, off of yeah. Vancouver. I think if there had been gold there, uh, I suspect you would have seen you know, a lot more Spanish. <laughs> would have changed things. Yeah. Well, and
0: that's, you know, part of the reason yeah. why they, they – uh, I, I think we we learned that in the last episode, you know, why they called it New Mexico – was entirely because of mm-hmm. this idea that the the Aztecs lived in the Valley of Mexico, and they really truly believed that somewhere north of there was going to be an Aztec like uh, civilization. And uh, while there was plenty of civilization, you know, the Puebloans and everything, uh, there weren't cities of gold there, and that's yeah. that's what they had always kind of hoped. And
1: it changed. Yeah, it's too bad all North America, yeah. but you know, like a really great spot to park your boat for fishing. Uh, is a whole different than the largest silver mine in yeah. history. I mean, those are those are very different prospects. Yeah.
0: yeah, and the and yet they still were willing man. They were willing to make some claims there. Yeah, Think about that. Well, there's no transcontinental railroad. No. I mean, you you, went, you got from Spain to Vancouver. <laughs> it takes a while.
1: <laughs> it, it took a, you got a long distance. However, you do that, you have got a long.
0: distance. It's an interesting. You know, they were they were so far off, and these this Spanish captain is making decisions, and the British, all of them, are making decisions. That truly uh, for an empire yeah. for this vast yeah. empire. and and you know their their monarchs back in Europe don't know they're there and very right? nearly for a moment uh were brought them to the brink of war and I mean ultimately yeah. there was uh, uh other things to fight over uh, but <laughs> the the one power that wasn't involved in at Nootka there the French uh, drew everyone's attention yes. but.
1: Yeah, and in the end, they all they all decided that they disliked the French more <laughs> than they disliked each other, and and their answer wasn't for someone to get control of them because their answer was okay, there was nobody. Yeah, to, they they never and away. they
0: never. I, I mean, I think it's interesting. They never fully decided uh, who actually you know where these who actually controlled any of the land around there. They never made a decision on the border, and that ultimately. Yeah. Uh, played a role in the you know the Oregon the Washington and Oregon is that the yes. fact that we didn't hadn't decided where that border was allowed there to still yeah, be disagreement yeah,
1: that uh, that that treaty there and then that led to the you know the, well the you know San Juan crisis and stuff yeah. like that too yeah. that happened there's lots of places where you know you you drew a line somewhere and then when you actually get there you're like well is it you know is it down that channel or that channel is it do we get that tree or that tree uh, and those you know those lines are often not drawn in the treaty how can you do it we've seen I mean We've seen that in conflicts between Missouri and
0: Iowa on the the history guide. So it's not surprising that we see that as a conflict between... Yeah, we did that at uh, the the Toledo War was all about someone's messed up map. So... (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. That, that's about
0: oh, someone drew a line. Yeah, the, you know, the honeybee war was over. You
1: know, which one of these is the rapids
0: yeah. that we draw our line to? Yeah, yeah, it's it's always less clear than than you want it to be. And uh, but it's it's amazing that you know that this was this was something that's i mean, essentially completely forgotten, which was for a moment uh, making headlines, and uh, almost bringing people to war, and had rather you know not insignificant impacts on pieces of history that we do remember, and. Mm-hmm. We've almost totally forgotten it, and so I mean, this is it's yeah, the kind of yeah. stories we really love that's to tell. That's what
1: you know. That's what the Easter guy is all about. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a story that deserves to be remembered. That could easily be forgotten, but in the story, which is itself just a fascinating little story, it's 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 got a broader implication than it shows. Yeah. Yeah, the same is true of inscription rock, and I, so it's interesting. That I I don't know that you know most Americans are really familiar with how much there was Spanish influence in in the part of the, of the world that is now the United States. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, I think that surprises people, a story of Bernard Galvez yep. and, and uh, fighting in the American Revolution and stuff like that. Uh, but, I mean, it, it is, uh, and, you know, at that point where it's not just the colonial times, but the point where the colonial touch is so light still, yeah. you know, these are really tenuous connections that history changed across yeah. that line. So it's, I mean, it's it's fascinating, you know, a guy gets in a boat, sails that far, and and pretends that because he's got a boat. You know, that he can, that you know, he can claim all this when, you know, in the end, you know, that's, you, so you have to, you have to wonder, it's a weird connection here. But I mean, if we were ever visited by UFOs, by aliens, that I mean, you'd be. have to think it's going to be really in the end, it's a guy in a boat with a crew trying to, trying to hope. Yeah. I mean, it might be a can, very tenuous. You know, he can scare everybody that's here because you know, he's a long way from home. Yeah. Right.
0: And that's not usually, I mean, I don't know. That's not the way we talked about it in like Star Trek, but it was, I mean, if yeah. it was as tenuous as our, as our connections to places like Nitka, uh, which you imagine yeah. the first the first contacts usually are that this is someone who Ooh. decided to go someplace no one else had yet, and that's uh, uh sometimes well gosh yeah. sometimes well I mean
1: these are you have to say about all of them. every one of them had to be brave. oh gosh I mean they know, were sailing along every way. guy every guy in all of those boats yeah. you know at some point you got on that boat and there was a very good chance you would never come back and they never know what happened to you <laughs> happened to a lot of and people they, and they went anyway yeah the millions yeah yeah that yeah, that went to sea like that and were never came yeah. home. And we don't, we still don't know what ever happened to those yeah. boats. So, so all of
0: these guys were doing that and
1: all that so that they could claim Spanish
0: Canada. Spanish Canada, which this is yeah. truly, uh, this is as far north as I think the Spanish ever claimed. But they, some mm-hmm. of the stuff they claimed, I mean, they had claims, uh, you know, through all of Colorado and, uh, and where mm-hmm. very few Spanish actually ever, ever went. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was a place where the Spanish certainly, did, they certainly did go there. Uh, they were, they were mm-hmm. in Canada. And doing their best to to defend it and ultimately i mean maybe it was a uh, successful for the spanish because while they they weren't ever able to really defend that claim to Nootka, they never gave up their claims of uh how far north they wanted the spanish empire to go and their whole mm-hmm. goal was you know to it at least if you're claiming Nootka, if you lose some ground you're not uh you're still farther north. If,
1: I mean, if the goal there was to draw a line to keep uh, the the you know, the Russians yeah. or the British or the Americans from from intruding more, I mean that it achieved its yeah. goal there. It did. It kind of drew that that line in the sand, and it wasn't until Guadalupe, Guadalupe yeah. Hidalgo that you know then we you know we drew a line that was farther south. It claimed everything yeah. north. And by then, uh, the but Spanish. Then, you know it the... took some time for the Americans and the British to yeah. agree over you know where what part of the world that
0: was. Yeah, and the yeah. Spanish, of course, you know ultimately, uh, their claims in Nootka didn't matter much because. After after the Napoleonic Wars, Mexico gains its independence, Mm -hmm. and then uh, Mexico Mm -hmm. was again uh, all the way up to the Spanish American War barely able to make claims in in uh, New Mexico and stuff like that. They were, I mean, they well, Mm -hmm. they were able to make claims. They were barely able to actually project power there. Mm Yeah, protect so, power into independent. Yeah, Mexico was never. I mean,
1: they weren't in Texas. The reason Texas and in independence yeah. is because it was very that the, the Mexican government wasn't really able to yeah. go out and extend its influence. As, uh, but on the other hand, still at the Spanish American War, you know, the Americans and the Spanish are fighting over who gets the Philippines. Oh yeah, I mean, for heaven's sakes, you know, the Spanish Empire still reached out an awfully long way. You know, well,
0: you yeah, know, that's I mean, that's 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 uh, decades after after the, the uh, yeah. Mexican-American War. So it's it's all stuff that we we, we fought over. Yeah, but Spain Spain held on as hard as they could uh, for as yeah. long as they could. Yeah,
1: yeah. And this is a good example of yeah. that. Maybe more than most people realize how much they hung on. And it's also, it's just, a, it's an interesting story. What's going on on that island? Yeah. I mean, they got there and they got, you know, they traded for European forks that they think were stolen from someone else's ship.
0: The fact like, that yeah. that was like, that was With... one of the claims to like, oh, well, you clearly weren't the first European there. They had forks. <laughs> When you show up, they had some pork, yeah.
1: <laughs> like that's
0: that that in itself is is this, is this really interesting? Uh, that this this interesting part of history, and ultimately, I mean, of course, this makes this this does make this decision that you can't just this prior discovery thing, which was always a fairly tenuous. I, I mean, uh, but the, the, this change to you can't just be like oh, I was there first. You actually have to have uh, you know some kind of. Some kind of settlement there uh, was was a big change in terms of uh, international law because before that, uh, for the Europeans, that was not how it worked. Which is how they're able to you know make these these claims. Yeah, you
1: stuck something on the ground, you made a, a, a proclamation as if anybody could hear you, and that was you know, yeah,
0: and that was enough. Oh, well, and
1: you have to you have to wonder. I mean, you can talk a lot about colonialism and exploration, and I mean because you know prior to that, at some point, people were making claims. Oh yeah, you know. You know, previous civilizations, but those questions are uh, might all. I mean, we're talking about going back to the moon, and there is a treaty on the moon, but I mean, it's you know, we're talking about you know, lots of land up there with lots of stuff on it that it's going to have some value, yeah. Uh, and and you know, the question is going to be, you know, who, over who. So, what happens when we start, you know, when we find new lands to discover? And they might not be here, yeah, they might be on another, you know, another celestial body somewhere, still going to be arguments, uh, but we're going to. Yeah, still gonna be arguing. I wonder if there's gonna be natives. That's gonna be, that interesting. Could be an interesting. But, I mean, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah. So, so this this could all happen again. Uh,
0: it's it's one of those things where history might repeat itself in a in a really interesting way that we don't expect, and I think that that's that's always something cool to look at. And I mean, that's why we want to study these interesting stories like this. Is that this was a A story that was worth remembering about people who were uh, fighting for something they thought was, you know, they very much believed was important and that ultimately Mm -hmm. uh, totally forgotten and washed away in the tides of other history. And I think it's an interesting uh, way to see that there was stuff going on everywhere everywhere. The whole time. Mm -hmm. There's history, you know, wherever you're talking about the the Napoleonic Wars or some particular battle or something like that, there were a billion different things going on in every other part of the world. Mm -hmm. And that's that's all. Mm -hmm. All of it was history.
1: Yeah. I mean, just that fascinating idea that the the Napoleonic Wars affected the the argument over, over who controlled Nootka. Uh, it's, it, that, it shows you how interconnected yeah. it is. So we, you can't really talk about 16th century or 19th century or European or – because it's all yeah. – the, the whole flow of history across the entire globe and, and all of humanity is all tied together in unique ways. And Nick is a great example of that.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.